God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Before we ask for anything, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that you allowed us to gather uh, here or, or online this morning. Thank you that you woke us up this morning. That uh, I assume for most of us, you gave us breakfast this morning. And uh, thank you that we live in a place where we can freely gather to worship you and to uh, read your word and study your word together. And so uh, now we ask God that you would speak to us. We believe that uh, this book, the Bible, these are um, not just uh, words on a page, but we believe they are literally the words of the living God. And they are the source of life. And God, we want more life. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Teach, teach us from your word. Uh, reveal to us who you are. And in doing so, help us to know ourselves better as well. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us uh, this morning. I pray that the truth and the beauty of your gospel would be communicated so clearly in these moments. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're standing, you can be seated. Good morning uh, once again and welcome. So good to be with you. As always, I have thought in weeks past, um, you know, I'll say something about the Niners and that will just endear myself to the congregation. And then inevitably after service, a bunch of Raiders fans are like, well, where's your, where's your love for the Raiders? So uh, I had some people ask if we could do the prayer time this morning for the Niners. I said, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I know there's a football game today and uh, as my team has been uh, on vacation for many weeks now, uh, go Niners. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're in Mark, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 22, and we'll go through uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Mark eight twenty-two through 9, 1, uh, continuing in our series that we are calling Let's Go, which is a, a study through the gospel of Mark. This is what it says. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? 
Uh, I know it says soul. I'm out of an older version of the ESV. For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, now I hope I just don't screw up that passage by preaching on it. Uh, April 23rd, 2006, uh, a young man in his late 20s named Aaron Ralston headed out for a day of hiking and climbing in the canyon lands of South Central Utah. He was an experienced climber and hiker, uh, and he had with him that day minimal provisions. He had a backpack that had about a liter of water in it, he had two burritos and some chocolate. And if I could just pause there, when I go hiking, I take like cliff bars and trail mix. And this guy had burritos and chocolate. I mean, living his best life, right? He knows how to do it. Uh, he had a video camera, but no cell phone, which wasn't really a huge deal because the place he was going had no cell service. Uh, but the most critical thing that he did or didn't do was that he didn't tell anyone at all where he was going. Uh, he got to a canyon called Blue John Canyon, which is a slot canyon. And a slot canyon is exactly what it sounds like. It's a canyon that's shaped like a slot, very narrow, and they can be potentially very deep. And as he was lowering himself into Blue John Canyon, he was holding onto a rock that was stuck between the walls of the canyon. And as he put his weight onto that rock, it dislodged from the walls of the canyon. He fell down to the bottom floor of the canyon as that 800-pound boulder was tumbling down on top of him, and he had just enough time to get his arms up before it became lodged again between the two narrow walls of the canyon. Unfortunately, his right arm was pinned between that boulder and the wall of the canyon. He spent the next four days stuck in that canyon alone, trying to ration his water and his burritos and his chocolate. He tried to chip away at the boulder to no avail. He tried to use his climbing ropes to fashion some kind of a pulley to dislodge that rock again to no avail. And he began in between uh, hallucinating and moving in and out of consciousness to be, to, he began to make peace with the fact that this was going to be the place that he would die. Now, uh, this was a widely reported event. And so I am operating under the assumption that many of you are familiar with this story. It's, uh, there's a book about it called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, there was a major motion picture called 127 Hours. Uh, and so I'm assuming many of us know how this played out. Um, but for those who maybe didn't, don't know, uh, when he woke up on his fifth day, stuck inside that canyon, uh, Aaron Ralston made the decision to cut off his own arm. Now, I'm not going to go into detail. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, even just like reading up on this in preparation for the message, I got queasy. It's not, it's not my deal. I don't, I don't like blood. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but suffice it to say, he had to, break the, the arm, he had to break the bones in his own arm, and then he had to fashion a tourniquet 
I know someone's like, you said you weren't going into detail. This is all I'm doing. And then it took him an hour to do it. And then he had to uh, hike out of the canyon without, it, without his arm. He had to rappel down a 65-foot cliff and begin an eight-mile walk back to where he had parked his car. Fortunately, a family vacationing from the Netherlands found him not long after he had started hiking, and they were able to call for help, and uh, he, uh, he survived. He wrote a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. There was a movie made about it. It's an unbelievable story. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of places we could go. There are a lot of things I could use this story to illustrate. But here's what I want to focus in on this morning. There are things in life that come naturally and make a lot of sense, right? Uh, Eating. It comes naturally and it makes a lot of sense. When we're hungry, we eat food and we feel better. Drinking, same thing. Sleeping, same thing. We want to do it. It feels good when we do it. It comes naturally, makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is a little, little um, less concrete, but love. Like I think most of us can agree there's something inside of us that wants to be loved. And, and for most of us, even though some of us maybe won't admit it, we want to love someone else. And so love, it just comes naturally. It makes sense. Physical intimacy comes naturally, makes sense. Uh, work, and now someone's like, ah, not so sure about that one. <laughs> but, but really, we, this is a different sermon for a different day, but we were created to be creative and to produce And so there's something natural and makes sense about doing work that is productive and creative, especially in order to provide for ourselves, our needs, and the needs of people uh, who are dependent on us. So there are things in life that come naturally and make sense. There are also things in life that don't come naturally and do not make sense. Marathons. They don't come naturally. They don't make sense. Body's not supposed to do that. If you are a marathoner, you are loved and you are welcome in this place. We are so glad that you are here. Um, Retirement planning. Like, okay, maybe at some level that makes sense, but it sure doesn't come naturally. Like, I've got $10, but you're telling me I've got to save one of these dollars for 50 years from now? I'd rather spend that dollar now. Budgeting. Doesn't come naturally. Okay, again, maybe it kind of makes sense, but it sure doesn't come naturally. And on the surface, doesn't seem like it makes sense. Vegetables. They don't come naturally they don't make sense. Sugar, that comes naturally, that makes sense. Cauliflower, not so much. So what do we do with these things? The things that come naturally and make sense, we just do them. The things that don't come naturally and don't make sense, what do we do? We don't do them. Yes, thank you. Or it takes a lot of effort to make them happen. It takes a lot of work and it takes overcoming natural inclinations and and biases to do the things that don't make sense that don't seem to come naturally. What is so shocking about the story of Aaron Ralston that I just shared with us? It, it's gruesome, for sure. But and I, and this is getting a little macabre right now. He's not the first person, nor will he be the last, who has had a gruesome injury to one of their appendages. But what is it about his story that made someone want to make a movie about it and made people want to buy a book about it is that he did it to himself, right? It's one thing to be severely injured. It's another thing to actually do that to yourself. That goes against every shred of instinct, every desire, everything that makes us human is like you don't cut off your own limbs. 
And yet he did. And on the surface, that doesn't make sense. But when you know the whole story, you realize that actually it was the thing that saved his life and it made a ton of sense. There are things in life that don't come naturally and don't make sense. And that makes them very hard to do. And so the question I want to hang out over the message that we're going to, the passage that we're going to talk about this morning is this. Can we do things that don't come naturally and don't make sense? Can we do things that don't come naturally and don't make sense? I have thought about this a lot this week as I've been working on this message because uh, you can't help but think about this guy's story and, and put yourself into that position. What would I have done under those same circumstances? And I, like my answer is I would have gone to see a movie, not go hiking by myself. <laughs> or I would have had a satellite phone with me or, you know, whatever. Like, I love this arm. I love this arm. And as I said earlier, I hate blood, especially my own. I, I passed out once when they were putting a routine IV in my arm. It's just not my deal. And so I'm not sure that I could actually do it. But as much as I love this arm, I love the rest of me a lot more than I love this arm. So would I have done it were I in that situation? I hope I never have to decide that answer. I hope that answer never, I, I hope that just we can go into eternity not answering whether I would have done it or not. But what I think is so compelling about his story is I'm going to answer the question I just asked. What is so compelling about Aaron Ralston's story is it answers the question, we can do things that don't come naturally and we can do things that don't make sense. And that is really good news for what we're about to talk about with this passage. As we get to the second half of Mark chapter 8 this morning, we have reached a very exciting moment in this gospel. We are at the halfway point. I thought you'd be way more excited about it than that. This is, uh, this is the watershed moment in the Gospel of Mark. As one of the scholars uh, I read this week said, this is the continental divide in the Gospel of Mark. See, up to this point, the story of Jesus and his disciples has been a story of them kind of wandering through the region of Galilee, crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee numerous times, wandering, seems, feels like almost aimlessly, though it wasn't, through Gentile territories, taking this circuitous route. The Gospel of Mark up to this point is a, for Jesus, it is a journey outward. And after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ here in Mark chapter 8, the entire tone and tenor of the Gospel changes. Jesus is no longer wandering in the area of Galilee. He is heading to one place, and that is to Jerusalem. The phrase on the way is in the passage that I just read, and it's in the next four chapters eight more times. Because from this point on, Jesus is a man on a mission. Now, he's been a man on a mission all the way up to this point, but it becomes way more focused in the second half of chapter 9. He stops telling people to keep him a secret. You know, up to this point, so many of these stories we've studied, he says, don't tell anyone. Don't go into the village. He doesn't say that anymore after we get through Mark chapter 8. He predicts his own death and resurrection three times between now and when it happens at the end of Mark chapter 8. So if the first half of Mark is a journey outward, the second half of Mark is a journey inward to the heart of it all, to Jerusalem, to his passion, death, and resurrection. And the moment that changes everything is the moment that we are studying today. See, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, no Jewish person has acknowledged who Jesus is. God the Father has acknowledged who Jesus is. Demons have acknowledged who Jesus is. 
Gentiles have acknowledged who Jesus is, but none of the children, none of the children of Israel have acknowledged who Jesus is. And when Peter, and he's, we believe, we'll get to this in a minute, he's speaking for the, all of the disciples when he says it. When Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Christ, what we see is that finally, some of the children of Israel are beginning to understand who Jesus is. And I say beginning very intentionally because we're going to draw three things out of this passage. And the first one is this. Sometimes we need multiple touches from Jesus. And actually, I'm going to change that point in this moment if you're taking notes. I would say usually we need more than one touch from Jesus. Usually we need more than one touch from Jesus. So here's, here's where we start off today's passage. Uh, Jesus and his disciples come to this town called Bethsaida. It is on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, just on the eastern side of the Jordan, which flows into the Sea of Galilee from the north. And they bring to him a man who is blind. And verse 22, they begged him to what? Touch him. Because there is power in Jesus' touch. They didn't ask him to touch his eyes or heal him. They just said, touch him. Verse 23, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So what's going on here? Jesus spits in his eyes, kind of gross, different sermon, different day. The guy opens his eyes and all of a sudden he's totally healed. No, he's partly healed. He sees partly he sees something that he thinks are people, but he says they look like trees walking around. I can't help but think of Lord of the Rings. Come on, walking trees. But he's not fully healed. And so then what happens? Verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So here it is. Jesus didn't heal him the first time. It took two touches from Jesus to heal this guy. Now listen, there are a lot of scholars who believe this shouldn't be in the Bible. And actually, Matthew and Luke, who both relied heavily on Mark's gospel to write their own, both of them leave this story out. It is the only story in all of the gospels where Jesus doesn't heal somebody immediately on the first time. Why? Why don't people think it should be in the Bible? Because it makes Jesus look like he's weak. Like the blindness was too tough for Jesus to heal or like he couldn't get it done on the first try, or you know, he, he, his power wasn't enough to do it right away, and I don't think that's it at all. There's a reason that I included this story with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. There's a reason that Mark put it right in front of the passage that we're about to look at next, and that is because he is painting for us a picture in this passage of the very thing that is going to happen with the disciples in the next passage. Peter gets up and he's like, you are the Christ. And then he does a face plant immediately afterwards because he could see men, but they looked like trees walking around because usually it takes more than one touch from Jesus for us to see clearly. Um, when you are, when I'm, when I'm speaking, you know, when they teach you, try, when they try and teach you how to preach, one of the things you learn is that you should use stories and illustrations that are going to connect with your audience. I do a pretty mediocre job of that. I know that. <laughs> and here's another example of that. Um, uh, there's a little button in your car that has a picture on it that looks like a baseball diamond, like a truncated baseball diamond. It's like a line with two angled lines and a round one up top. And then it's got three squiggly lines through it. You native Californians never need to use that button. 
But those of us, you know, from the north, those of us from the east, those of us from the Midwest, that is like a critical button in the operation of our automobile. Here's what it is. It's the windshield defrost button. Got that? Windshield defrost. It's for cold weather. What happens when you live in a cold climate? especially if you don't have a garage or if your garage is full of other stuff, if you have to park your car outside, when you go out to your car in in the morning, first thing in a month like we're in right now in January, the windows and the windshield, you will not be able to see through them. They are full of ice or frost. And so you get in your car and you're freezing and you turn on the ignition and it, you know, it, it doesn't turn over the first couple times. You're like, not today, please. And then, it, and then it turns over and the car starts. And the first button you hit is that windshield defrost button. I guess, I guess if you're in a Tesla, you speak it like windshield defrost. And it does. <laughs> but for all of us in normal cars, right? You push that button. And what happens? The vents right underneath the windshield start blowing, start touching the windshield with air. Now, initially it's cold air because the engine's cold, but as it runs more, that starts to be warm air. And when that air starts to warm up, what happens? A little rectangle, about two inches by four inches, begins to clear up at the bottom of the windshield. But here's the problem. You don't have another 15 minutes to wait for the rest of the windshield to defrost, right? So you do what I would do. You, you put that sucker into drive and you drive like this. And, and it's just like, I think I see cars, but they look like trees walking around. So safe, right? And then eventually the car warms up and that hot air keeps blowing. And after that hot air just keeps touching and keeps touching and keeps touching that windshield, it, that, that, that space that is clear, that space that you can see just grows and grows and grows and grows until the whole picture is clear. Anybody feel like that's what it's like to follow Jesus? You don't have to put your hands up, but you can if you want. Anybody feel like that's what it's like to follow Jesus? Like, man, I know there's a lot more out there, but it's like I feel like I'm looking through this little two-by-four window, and I just I can't quite see clearly. Be encouraged, because that is the normative way that it works. Usually it takes more than one touch from Jesus for us to see clearly. I suppose, no, I don't suppose. I know there are people who it's like they have an overnight radical transformation and you know one day they are selling drugs and beating up puppies and the next day they are preaching three-point sermons on transubstantiation that is the exception for most of us it is a process it is days weeks months and years of walking with Jesus of sitting under his word of communing with him and learning from him and being in community with other people who are following him. And all of those touches, all of those touches are helping to make things more clear and more clear and more clear. And I don't want to discourage anyone, but it will not ever be totally clear this side of heaven. We need more than one touch from Jesus and that is okay. So if if things are confusing if things aren't clear, if you're not sure what this whole deal is about, be encouraged because that is the way that Jesus usually works in people's lives. And I think it's a grace 
because it takes us time. He gives us time to come to an understanding of who he is and what he's all about and what he calls us to. And the reason I say I think that's a grace is because of the next two things I want to draw out of this passage, and this is it. Here's the second thing I want us to see as we continue through this passage, and it is this. We cannot have the Christ without the cross. We cannot have the Christ without the cross. So Jesus and his disciples leave Bethsaida and they head to a village called Caesarea Philippi, which was about 18 miles northeast of there in Gentile territory. They're not going back to Israel. Caesarea Philippi was known as a hotbed city for idolatry and paganism and worship of false gods. It is not the place that a bunch of good, kosher Jewish men went to hang out. And Jesus takes his disciples there and Mark tells us that on the way, Verse 27, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? He's like, what's the buzz? What are you guys hearing on the street? What are people saying about me? And they told him, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, and what are they essentially saying? People are confused. It doesn't make sense. You, you, you don't make sense to people. And he says, okay, how about you? Verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Uh, literally the most important question any of us could ever answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And it's like, that's it. Nailed it. First time in the whole gospel that someone has articulated from Israel who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ. Now Christ uh, is, comes from the Greek word Christos, which is this, means the same thing as the Hebrew word Mashiach which we say Messiah, they both mean anointed one. Time does not permit us to do a full Old Testament theology of the predictions and prophecies of the Messiah, but suffice it to say, the Messiah was an expected figure because God had promised him in the Old Testament that he would send an an anointed one and he would be more than a man and he would be in the lineage of David and he would be a king unlike the nation had ever seen and he would bring justice and righteousness and peace and he would restore Israel to its first primary position amongst all the kingdoms and nations of the world. And by the time we get to Jesus, they're occupied by Rome. The nation of Israel is desperately waiting for the Messiah. There are a bunch of false messiahs, people who are like, I'm the Messiah. And then Rome killed them. And it was like, nope, that guy wasn't the Messiah. And so they're waiting for this powerful, regal, kingly figure to show up on the scene and fix everything that has gone wrong. So Peter says, you're the one. You are the anointed one. You are the one we are waiting for. But then, this is what Jesus tells him. Verse 31. Oh, and I I said this earlier. We believe Peter's speaking for all of the disciples. Like, he's, he's giving what they all thought about Jesus in that moment. Verse 31, this is what Jesus says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, And he said this plainly. And then what does Mark tell us? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Why? Because Peter wanted the Christ without the cross. Because the disciples wanted the Christ without the cross. And look, we can give them a lot of grace. They had no framework. They had no framework for a Messiah that would be suffering, rejected, and killed. If that was what happened to them, they weren't the Messiah. And so Peter's like, no, 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 no. 
you are the Messiah, and I don't think you're right about those things. They can't happen to you because that doesn't happen to the Messiah that we are waiting for. They wanted the Christ, but they didn't want the cross. And here's what it is. They wanted the double-double without the calories. But you can't have that because they, they go together. They're inextricably linked. Jesus and the cross cannot be separated nor can the double-double be separated from the calories. They, they wanted the degree without the dissertation. They wanted the paycheck without actually showing up to work. But that's not the way it works because we cannot have the Christ without the cross. And before we go in too hard on Peter and the disciples, can we just acknowledge in this moment, we want the exact same thing. We want the Christ without the cross. We want the glory, the dominion, the power, the victory, the overcoming. But we don't want the suffering, the, the rejection, and the death. We want the Christ without the cross. And, and, and you don't have to look any further than a bunch of other churches to see that that is true. Because you will see so many places where, where I would say what they preach is a prosperity gospel a health and wealth gospel, gospel light, where the crux of the message is that Jesus can give you your best life now. That is garbage. It is a lie from the pit of hell and it is preaching Christ without the cross. Why do we want the Christ without the cross? Why do we want Jesus without the cross? This is where it gets a little bit real. Actually, from here on out, it gets real. Because if our Lord and Savior had to go to the cross, then we as his followers have to go to our own cross as well. We want Christ without the cross because we don't have to go through our own cross. If our Lord and Savior, the one we are following, the president and CEO, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, if he went to a cross and that was his glory, his suffering and rejection was his glory, then it is in our suffering and our rejection that we also find our glory. I think sometimes we do a disservice, and I am guilty of this as much as anybody, of constantly saying Jesus died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. That is true. That is theologically true and sound and beautiful. He paid the penalty we could have never paid. But look at what Dallas Willard has to say about that. He was a, a well-known theologian and scholar. This is what he says. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we would join him. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we would join him. We want a Christ without a cross because the cross stinks because it stinks to suffer and sacrifice and die to ourselves. And we just want the overcoming victory, best life now. But that is not the full gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot have the Christ without the cross. And so finally, the last thing I want us to just sit in as we look at the rest of this text, as a follow-on to that, if we can't have Christ without the cross, Followers of Jesus choose suffering. Followers of Jesus choose suffering. Talk about like 
That's not natural and that doesn't make sense. Followers of Jesus choose suffering. So going on, Peter rebukes Jesus and then in verse 33, Jesus turns and sees his disciples and he rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. When Jesus is calling you Satan, that's not good. Because either you are Satan and the end is not going to be good for you or you're not and you don't want to be called that. Satan is actually a, a transliteration of a Hebrew word that literally means the adversary. So, so God is saying to Peter, you're against me right now. Don't, 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 don't be my adversary in this moment. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then verse 34, and he called to him the crowd. And that is a critical statement. I love that. Because what does that say? What is Mark telling us when he says that? That Jesus is now not just speaking to his immediate 12 disciples, but he's speaking to a wider audience. So when he calls to him the crowd, who is the crowd? I don't know who it was then, but it's you and me today. So, so like, listen up. Because he called to him the crowd, and this is what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Here's what's amazing about this passage. Uh, We know, because we have hindsight, that Jesus was going to die on a cross. They didn't know it at the moment. All they knew about a cross when Jesus is saying you got to take up your cross is that it was this Roman form of incredible humiliation, incredible suffering, excruciating death. They used it for the the lowest of the low and for the the worst traitors. And it was used as a form of like keeping the, the, the nations that they had conquered at bay because it was such a horrendous way to die. That's what they knew the cross as. They didn't know that Jesus was going to go to the cross eventually. He knew that he would go to the cross eventually. And here's the other thing we have with the benefit of hindsight. When Jesus tells his followers, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What do we know about Jesus going to the cross? I mean, a lot of things. You don't have to answer that. He chose it. Jesus chose the cross. Listen, he is God. Jesus is, Jesus is God incarnate. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He has no beginning. He has no end. He speaks and things become. He, he is sovereign over all. There is nothing. He submits to nothing or no one, including the cross. And so it wasn't this deal where it was like, man, these stupid people have screwed it up so much I guess I'm going to have to go to a cross to figure this out. It was the plan from the very start. He chose the cross. He chose the sacrifice, the suffering, the humiliation, the rejection, and the death. And so when he says to the crowd, for anyone who wants to follow me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross. He is saying, my followers will choose to suffer. They will choose to suffer. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't come naturally. But that is the call of Jesus Christ on each one of our lives. He's saying, if you are going to be my disciple, you will make a choice to sacrifice and suffer. If you will be my disciple, you will choose 
to cut off your own arm, not literally, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. And uh, can I just keep it real? I always try to. I don't think we do a great job of it. I think we pay a lot of lip service to taking up our cross. But I'm just telling you right now, a flat tire on the 101, that is not taking up your cross. Missing out on the promotion that you thought you should deserve, that is not taking up your cross. We got churches all over this world that are full of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ and their lives look exactly the same as their neighbors, their coworkers, and their friends. Our lives should look peculiar to the world around us if we are following Jesus in the way that he has called us to. They shouldn't make sense because he calls his followers to sacrifice. He calls his followers to suffering and he doesn't call them just uh, to accept it. He calls them to choose it. I'm gonna say something else a little bit controversial. I think it is fair to say based on this text we are studying, studying. If you cannot point in your life to some area of sacrifice or suffering, I think it is fair to question whether you are really a follower of Jesus Christ. I know that sounds harsh, but listen to me. Some of us, and I think actually in some ways this is the easier route, some of us are going to have sacrifice and suffering forced on us. Some of us, if, if... We have people in this room or watching online today, if you came up here and told your story, there would not be a dry eye in the room. Just look at Job. Look at, have you considered my servant Job? He did everything right, and yet God allowed Satan to have his way with him. He knew sacrifice, and he knew suffering because God allowed it in his life. But there are some of us, and this is a word for Silicon Valley, with all of its wealth, all of its comfort, all of its security, there's, there are some of us who we are gonna have to look at our lives and say, you know what? I need to make a conscious decision to choose some kind of sacrifice or some kind of suffering because that is the call of taking up our cross and following Jesus. His glory was not in his reigning in power. It was in his suffering and so is ours. And that sounds sick, right? It sounds that, that, that's, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound natural. That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like, like cutting your own arm off. But some of us are going to have to look at our lives and say, you know what? I'm not going to continue to upgrade. Every time, I get a, 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 every time there's a new round of money coming in, every time there's a new promotion, I'm not going to buy a new better car, a new better house. I'm going to actually live in less than I could afford because that is a way that I can sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Some of us are just going to have to say, you know what? I'm not going to go the way that the world tells me to go of just collecting, constantly collecting, constantly co consuming, and more and more and more. I'm going to have to make a conscious decision not to get something that I really want. Some of us might choose to foster children in our home. That is a sacrifice. Some of us might choose to adopt a child into our home. Some of us might choose to take our precious free time, and I don't say that sarcastically, and actually use it to do something outside of ourselves, to serve somebody else. Again, we pay a lot of lip service to dying to ourselves, but we don't do a lot of sacrificing in order to make that happen. 
Some of us might have to step up and use our gifts at church and show up for a worship rehearsal on a Thursday night when that is not very convenient. But then on Sunday morning, you are helping actually lead people into the presence of God because you have sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom of God and for his people. Some of us might actually choose to leave family, friends, home, comfort, everything we know and love because we sense that God has called us to a different place. Conversely, some of us might have to stay right where we're at, even though we don't want to stay there. And that's a word for the Bay Area too, because this is a hard place to live. And we might choose against all, it doesn't make any sense, but we might choose to stay where we are because we believe in our soul that this is where God has called us to be. Because here it is, followers of Jesus don't just accept sacrifice and suffering, they choose it because it is the way of the cross. We would love to have Jesus without the cross, but that's not the way it works. How was Aaron Ralston able to sever his own arm? How was he able to do that? He was playing a longer game than the short, mean, and nasty one he had for those five days in that canyon. He had a longer vision than what was right in front of him. He's not a, by, by, I, don't, I don't get any impression that he's a spiritual guy by reading up on this story, but, but he says that on the last night that he was there in the canyon, he was in between consciousness and unconsciousness. He was hallucinating, and he saw a vision of himself with one arm playing with a child. And he took that to mean that he was supposed to get out of that canyon and have a child one day. And that motivated him to do what he did. And he did become, eventually he became a father. He was playing a longer game. How can followers of Jesus choose to intentionally sacrifice? How can followers of Jesus choose to intentionally suffer? For the very same reason. We are playing a longer game. There is more out there than what is right in front of us in this place and in this time. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. If this is all there is, this one shot, if what is right in front of us is all there is, we would be fools to live this way. But if it is not, if there is a God and his son is Jesus Christ and he is coming back one day to judge the quick and the dead, to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, then to sacrifice now in the short term for gain in the long term is not foolish. It makes total sense. There was a missionary to Central America in the middle of the last century. His name was Jim Elliott. Uh, he was killed, martyred by the people that he was trying to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to. After he died, his wife uh, printed his, or uh, yeah, created a book out of his journals. And one of the lines that he wrote in his journal uh, that has become very famous uh, is this. Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
We can't have Christ without the cross. And we get to choose sacrifice and suffering. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will find it. I think that makes total sense. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the beauty of your word that, that it, it both encourages, it both gives hope, it gives instruction, and it convicts. And God, we simply want to be a people who are after your own heart. God, we want to stand before you one day and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have all kinds of confidence that we will, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done. And so God, we ask that you would help us to walk in your ways, to live as you have prescribed, not so that we can earn our salvation, not so that we can um, look good in your eyes, but simply in an unbelievable response of gratitude for what you have already done for us. God, help us to be the people you have called us to be. We can't do that in our own strength. We can't do it in our own power. We need you. Do what only you can do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now have a, a song of response. This is an opportunity to continue worshiping God. It's an opportunity to do business with God, to speak with him. If you feel God's spirit speaking into you in any way, uh, listen to that and respond in kind. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know what this long game is that I just talked about, there's no better day to do that than today. I would love to talk to you about that after service. If you feel like God leading you to, to, to confess something to him or ask him for something in this moment, follow that prompting of the spirit. And then I'll be back up after we worship to close out our service. Praise God. Thank you, Pastor Gary. Come on, stand with us. Let's worship with this last song. God, we build our lives upon your love. Sing, church. And worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We live for you. In Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Show me who 
build my life and I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation and I the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved, you're prayed for, and you're sent. Amen.